Well, this morning we are going to look at obedience. That's the theme of, of the morning. That's what we're going to look at. What does God's word say to us about obedience? Now, obedience is a big concept. There, there's the obedience of restraining ourselves from doing that which we ought not to do. That's a form of obedience. And then there's the obedience of engaging ourselves toward that which we ought to do. And, and there's a continuum from the one to the other, that which we should not do to that which we should do. And, and we all exist somewhere on this continuum of obedience. Now, many of us are parents or grandparents, or if not, perhaps you're an aunt or an uncle or a teacher, or you've seen children in the church or in your extended family or, or what have you. And so we all know this concept of obedience when it comes to children. There's this idea of obedience with regard to children of what they ought not to be doing. Uh, many, many years ago, I don't know how young I was, but I was very young, maybe four. I, I would like to say I was three, but maybe I was four. And my parents were gone away on, on vacation, and they would record their conversations with us. I don't know where they had gone, I forget. But they would record their conversations, and one of the recordings that I remember being played back to me was, I was so pleased to tell my parents, who were in a faraway country, wherever it was, I said, I did not bite my sisters today. And I was so proud of myself, and I was trying to brag to them about my obedience. I didn't bite my sisters. I, I was having this, this trouble with biting my sisters. I had three sisters. I don't know which one got bit more. But, but that's a four-year-old four understanding of obedience. There's also those things about our children that we just know is good for them. So I don't know if you've had this experience, if you have children or grandchildren. You say, brush your teeth. And then it becomes this fight. No, brush your teeth because otherwise, you know, as parents, we know it's going to result in going to the dentist. The dentist is going to find that there's a cavity. The cavity is going to require much more work. If you just brush your teeth, then it becomes this fight. Or eat your vegetables. Can't just live on candy and french fries. Or on a cold day, put on your coat. Or say thank you. And, and as a parent, I'm wondering, at what point do we have to, are we able to stop saying these things? At, at what point does natural obedience kick in? Last example, if you own dogs, dogs are the best creatures in the world. God created dogs so that when the rest of the world won't obey you, there is this one little fluffy thing that will do everything you ask of it. Until it's minus 20 uh, outside, and in our house anyway, the routine is before we go to bed, I put the dogs out. They go out for certain reasons. They come back in, so hopefully we can sleep through the night. Every now and again when it's cold out, they just sit on their chair and look at me. And, and I say, you know, it's like a mini Armageddon in my head because this is the ultimate rebellion a dog is made to obey that's why it exists and even my dog won't obey me and so I say come on will not anyone obey me today finally I get up and I take my dogs off their chair and I put them outside and I require their obedience now these are some anecdotes but obviously, this concept of obedience goes a lot deeper. It's, it's a concept that ties us with our Creator, with our Maker, with God, and with our Savior, Jesus Christ, our King. 
And at the heart of the Christian life is this concept of obedience. And so there's the obedience of not doing what we ought not to do, restraining our sin. And then there's the obedience of living for Him, doing the things that He wants us to do. And how often do we do those things? What is the depth of our obedience? Where are we on this continuum? Are we like children who just fight every time their parents ask them to brush their teeth? or eat their vegetables or put on the coat? Are we like my dogs on a cold day who know that they have to obey, they're made to obey, but they just won't? Or are we not only restraining sin in our lives, but actively looking for ways to please our God? That's what we're going to look at today. Would you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1? We've spent uh, a good deal of time in these first seven verses, and we're going to wrap that up today. As you're opening your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, would you please stand? Today we're going to be focusing on verses 5 and 6, but I'm going to read all seven verses. This is the Word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, as we take a look at these, your scriptures written by your slave, Paul, the apostle, who is set apart for the gospel of God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister among us, especially as we consider this idea of obedience of faith. I pray that you would encourage us where we can be encouraged and commended. And I plead with you to deeply challenge us and convict us of where we fall short in the area of obedience. I pray that it would be your spirit and your word that leads us through this text. Help me to be faithful. Unbind my tongue to say the things that need to be said, and bind my tongue so that I don't say anything that ought not to be said. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Master, our Savior, our God. Amen. Please be seated. Hopefully, these seven verses are becoming very familiar, Uh, and so I want to go through a review of them 
so that what we know about these verses just settles into us. It becomes very central to our understanding of ourselves and of the gospel, and it gives us the right expectation and foundation for understanding the book of Romans. Uh, these seven verses are the introduction to the book, so they set the tone. They, they explain to us what Paul hopes to accomplish. And, and so really, the, these seven verses could be summarized, as I have said in previous weeks. This is a letter from Paul to the saints in Rome. And then in the middle of verses 1, where he says this is from Paul, and verse 7, where he says this is to the saints in Rome, he identifies some things about himself. He says, I know who I am. And he expounds that in verse 1. And then verses 2 through 6, he says, I know what my message is. This is a man who had a precise understanding of who he was, who God was, and what he was called to be and to do in the world. This is a man who lived with purpose. And just before we move on, I wonder how many of us are living with that kind of purpose. I know for myself, every now and again, I come to these moments in my life where I recognize I've begun to drift. I've begun to go through the motions. I'm doing things. I'm busy, but I'm not living with, with this kind of purpose. At the core of my sense of who I am, do I, do I really know who I am in relationship to God and his gospel? Do I really know what my life is all about? Am I living intentionally? Maybe I'm not the only one in this room that has struggled with these things. Or maybe you've never struggled with this and you ought to be struggling with this. Two weeks ago, we explored who, God understood him, or who Paul understood himself to be. He, he was a slave. He had been conquered by Christ. He was a rebel and an enemy who wanted to arrest Christians and kill Christians, and he did both. And then, on the road to Damascus, he was conquered by Christ. So he became the slave of the one who conquered him. He had an infinite sin debt that he couldn't pay off. And had God not come along and, and intervened in his life, he would be paying off that de debt forever in hell. But Christ took his sin debt on the cross and paid it off. So Paul was a slave of Christ to live for the one who paid off his debt. Paul was an apostle given a charge to go and establish churches, to, to, to spread the gospel among the unbelieving world, especially among Gentiles, that is the non-Jews. And every one of us is sitting in this room today because Paul was obedient to the call of apostleship. If the Lord doesn't return, who is going to be raised from the dead because you were obedient to the call that God had put on your life? Third, Paul was set apart. He was a missionary. We've all been set apart. We all ought to be on mission. What's your mission? Why did God make you? Last week, we took a look at what Paul understood his message to be. And we see it at the very end of verse 1. His message was the gospel of God. 
And in verses 2 through 6, we, we see three things that Paul wants us to know about the gospel of God. Last week we got through two of them. This week we're going to pick up the third. The first thing that Paul wants us to know about the gospel of God is that the gospel of God was promised by the Old Testament scriptures. A right understanding of any Old Testament passage must discover how that Old Testament passage sheds light on the Gospel. Secondly, and and related to that, a full understanding of the Gospel requires us to go back and learn the Old Testament. Uh, Last week I gave this analogy, and, and the more I thought about it, the more I think it's extremely helpful for us The Old Testament creates boxes of theological categories. So so the Old Testament teaches us how to think about God and reality. And and so we get these categories of of theology that that we, we can understand what is real and what is not real. And the New Testament comes and fills those boxes up with Christ. So if you don't have the boxes, you're, you're not filling anything up. So all of the boxes come to us, not from the New Testament. All of those boxes are presupposed by the Old Testament Scriptures. And, and so we have to get into the Old Testament so that we can get the right worldview. What, what is God saying is true and not true about reality? And then we go to the Gospel. We go to Jesus Christ. We go to the New Testament Scriptures to see how Jesus totally fills up that box. Let me give you one example. The box of clean unclean and holy god has divided reality into three categories there's holy there's common and common is divided into clean and unclean if you don't know that you will just say there is no such thing as clean and unclean and holy but what jesus does when he comes along he doesn't abolish those categories those boxes he explains them for us it's not food that puts you in an unclean box It's what comes out of your heart. You see, he doesn't demolish the box. He fills it up. And he transitions us, because we're all unclean, from that box to a holy box through the blood of his cross. He says, the only way that you can be made holy is through my death on the cross. That's just one example. Secondly, we learn about the gospel The gospel of God concerns God's Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was descended from David. That's what we learn in verse 3. Saying that Jesus is descended from David affirms two things. Number one, Jesus has a rightful claim on the throne of Israel. Uh, As the descendant of David, he is the rightful king of the Jews. And then we spent a lot of time last week going over, if we follow that logic through, according to Psalm 2, the second claim is, as the king of the Jews, Jesus has a rightful claim to be the king of the world. Because the Davidic king is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what Paul's saying right here. And and before we even get into focusing on obedience directly, that has has an implication for our understanding of obedience. If he's the king, then we must be his subjects. We, We submit ourselves to his authority. And every nation under heaven must do the same. 
Finally, we also found out that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. And we, we said this isn't about his divinity. I know we often think in terms of that, but the title Son of God was reserved for the Davidic king. So this just spells out what Paul had already said to us. When the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, he was crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It was he had the right claim to that, being the descendant of David, but his adopted father, Joseph, was also a descendant of David, and he wasn't crowned the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But it was at the moment of Christ's resurrection from the dead that God declared by the Holy Spirit, through the resurrection of this Davidic seed, this son of David, that this is the Son of God. This is the Psalm 2 King. This is the King of Kings and the Lord of lords thirdly there's one more so let me just recap number one the gospel of god is a fulfillment of the old testament number two the gospel of god is concerning god's son jesus christ our lord the third thing that paul wants us to know about the gospel of god is this this is what we're going to spend the rest of our time on today the gospel of God will result in the obedience of faith. The gospel of God will result in the obedience of faith. If you're at the Flourish Conference uh, last weekend, if you're a woman, or if you've listened to it online, that was a major part of that theme, that, that we want to flourish, we want to have fruit in our lives. What is the fruit in our lives, it's fruit that comes from the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith is the good works that flow out from a true faith in God. Let's just take a look at those verses to see exactly what Paul is trying to say here in verses 5 and 6. Through whom, that is, through God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ... We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Grace is not an easy concept for us to understand. And we can err in two ways. We can fall into the ditch on the left or we can fall into the ditch on the right. When it comes to grace, we cannot understand grace and we can still think that we need to do something to earn God's favor. Uh, we, we can just miss that actually there's nothing we can do. We're, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not our own doing. It's not our own works. It's a gift from God that no one may boast. But we can fall into the ditch and, and claim to some notion of grace and then fall into the ditch by thinking that we need to maintain God's favor. We need to top up God's favor. We need to do something to add to the grace of God. And in so doing, we deny the efficacy of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. When he said, it is finished, he meant it is finished. There's nothing left for us to do but believe. That's one ditch. The other ditch is, well, if we're saved by grace, it doesn't matter how we live. We're just going to live my life as I want to live it, trusting that it is finished. 
And to stay on the road between these two ditches is going to be a challenge that we all must uh, just know is before us for the rest of our lives. We're always going to be zigzagging down the road of grace. And sometimes the, the wheels of our life are going to get very close to one ditch or the other. And so we have to continually remind ourselves that we need to stay on the road. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing we can do to earn God's love. There's nothing that we can do to top up God's favor or our merit or God's love for us. On the other hand, what Paul is saying is if you're really saved, the gospel of God will result in what he calls the obedience of faith if you're saved if you truly have understood grace your life will increasingly manifest obedience to god not because you have to in the sense of salvation but because you want to just very important nuance. I said not that you have to in order to be saved. It's a half-truth. Because anyone who is saved will want to be obedient. If you don't want to be obedient, you're not saved. And I'm not... I'm not going to soften that. You might not be saved. It's possible you're not saved. No. If you don't want to be obedient, you are not saved. Does this mean we never wrestle with the desires of our flesh? Does it mean that, that we never have a, a desire for sin? No, that's not what I'm saying. But underneath those desires, more core to who we are is a desire for obedience so that there's grief, remorse, there's an understanding that that sin, for the pleasure that you received from that sin, and there, let, make no mistake, sin is delicious, but it sours in the stomach. So we would be fools to say that there's no, no, nothing enticing about sin. It's enticing. In the moment, it, it's, it's pleasurable. It feels good. It satisfies. But if you're saved, it will sour in your spiritual stomach. The gospel will result in the obedience of faith. Take a look here at verse 5. It will bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name. We want to be obedient because we love Christ. We desire sin because we love ourselves. Who's the king in your life or the queen? We sin for ourselves. The obedience of faith is for Christ and the glory of His name. Now having said that, there is no greater joy, there's no greater satisfaction, there's no greater fulfillment in the life of a saint 
in the life of a believer, someone who's been saved, than to bring glory to God. All of life's joys are wrapped up in glorifying God. And so we rightly glorify God in order to live the best possible life for ourselves. And so I, I never want us to say, well, it's, it's just all drudgery. We, we want to lift up Christ, that we're obedient for the sake of his name, and it's a huge sacrifice to us. Actually, there's no greater good for us than to seek the glory of God and to lift high the name of Christ. Now, I skipped over uh, at this point how Paul begins, so just back up in verse 5. We're told that it is through Christ that we have received, and who's the we here? The we is probably Paul speaking of himself. He may also be thinking of the other apostles, big A apostles. So, so he is working on a team, on a team effort to go out and share the gospel, trusting that as the gospel spreads, it will bring about what we've already spoken about, the obedience of faith. But, but look at how he talks about this. Through whom, that is through Jesus, we, the apostles, have received grace. So foundational to the obedience of faith. We're not talking about an obedience that requires us to try harder, first and foremost. It's an obedience that is rooted in the grace of God. What does that mean? It means that if you truly understand grace, the most natural, the most rational thing in your life will be an outflow of obedience. It's the grace that initiates this desire for obedience. It's not God up in heaven the way every other uh, religion has God saying, you must do this or I'll punish you. The gospel brings about obedience the exact opposite way. I have overflowed, lavished upon you my grace. So follow me. Live for me. And then he says that he was an apostle and his whole life is focused on bringing about this kind of obedience for the sake of Christ. Now, in the introduction, I asked the question, or I, I raised the issue that their obedience exists on a continuum. On the one hand, obedience begins in the most negative, the most basic form of restraining ourselves from doing that which we ought not to do. So obedience begins when we say, there are certain things that I was doing in my life that my King, my Savior, my God has identified as sin. In order to be obedient, I have to root that sin out of my life. I think that's the form of obedience that, that we in Canada are most familiar with. That, that the obedient Christian life is the life that, that is engaged in the mortification of sin. It, it's a life that is trying to kill the sin tendencies in us. And, and that is good, that is excellent, that is necessary. But that's just the beginning of the obedience of faith. In fact, the obedience of faith begins to slide in a continuum all the way over here. And if we go from the one extreme of this continuum of obedience being stop sinning, the other extreme is love the Lord your God 
with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two extremes of the obedience of faith. Is there anyone here loving the Lord their God with their whole heart, with their whole soul, with their whole strength? Anyone? Because if so, I'll sit down there and you can finish the sermon. I'm not. And here's the challenge when we preach something like this is there is a pastoral desire to affirm and commend. There's nothing more that a preacher wants to do than stand up and say, well done. We're doing a great job. This is an excellent church. Just We are gushing with the obedience of faith. And if I focus down here on restraining sin, if this was a sermon about stop sinning, I think I could say that knowing full well that there's sin in all of our lives. I could say, as your pastor, from the, the, the glimpses, the, the, the invitations into your life that you have given to me, I, I think there's a real desire among us to live lives that, that are rooting sin out of our lives. I think there's, there's a real genuine desire to, to stop sinning. And so, so let's just commend ourselves here. Not, not to say, well, we're perfect. We're not yet perfect. But I really do see in, in you a desire to live a life without sin with all of its struggles, all of its difficulties. And so, yes, we trip and stumble and all that, but we're, we're, we're at least making some progress there. But I am detained before the Lord to share with you the fire in my bones. And I say that very specifically. There has been fire in my bones for some months now that I can't keep inside. That when it comes to loving the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength, we are lacking in the obedience of faith. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. And then the rest will be added to you. Is there, and I'm not asking for an answer here because maybe there are some, but I want, I want us to ask this question together of ourselves. Is there anyone here seeking first the kingdom of God with their lives? First. What we must not do, what I cannot do is say, we need to do better, we need to do more. Because that misses the whole point. 
I don't think we can do better. I don't think we can do more. I think all of your lives are totally full. They are full to the point of breaking. I, I am not asking you to do better at church. That's not what this is. It's actually much scarier than that. I wonder if we need to totally restructure our lives. That the world has crept in to our very lives, the very pattern of our living, so that we can't do this. We can float somewhere in the middle on the spectrum of the obedience of faith. And we could commend ourselves, which is good and right to do, so far as it goes. But I can't give you a false assurance as your pastor that we are practicing the obedience of faith in loving God with our heart, soul, and strength, with seeking first the kingdom of God, because we're, we're just not. And in order to do so, it's not to be at church more, and it's not to add another Bible study. And I've, I've gone through that in my own prayer and discussion and with God and trying to, like, what do we do, God? How do I, how do I help to shepherd the church so that we get there? And, and my tendency is to add more on you, to, to weight you down with more things to do that are churchy. That's not going to work. Because either you won't participate or you will with the wrong heart, or it will totally crush you. Which is not pastoral at all, and not helpful. So I don't have, I don't have the answer. To, I don't. But I'm fairly certain that it has something to do with a total rethinking of our lives. You see, every one of us is going to die. And then we meet Christ. Where do you want to have spent your life on the spectrum of obedience of faith? Are we so easily satisfied that restraining sin it will be enough for us? It's a good start. But... Paul didn't and couldn't change the world if he merely restrained his sin. How are we going to change the world We're too busy. We're too distracted. We care too much about the Canadian dream and not enough about the kingdom of God. Anyone ready to lay down their life for Christ? It, who's, who's ready to die, to do something so radical that I'm ready? I don't know that I am. I want to be, though. And before we get there, who's ready to not lay down their life in death, but to lay down their life 
by living for Christ. The reality is, this is not a South Shore problem. This is a Canadian problem. This is a North American problem. This is a Western Christianity problem. We are living the Western routine of life, and we're fitting Jesus in. He's not the center. He's not the sun of our solar system of life. And what Paul says here is through Jesus Christ, remember who he is, the descendant of David, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of God, we've received grace and apostleship, says Paul about himself, to bring about the obedience of faith. And that's not just the restraining of sin. It is an all-out, on-fire, lay down my life and live everything for Christ. I, I think we'll, we'll pause and pray because I, and then we'll, I'm not done preaching, but we need to pray about this because this is big. This is big level stuff that I'm not expecting uh, an immediate change. I'm not expecting a, a transformation where next week if we take a poll that all of a sudden everyone's life looks totally different. Th this is going to take years. But I guess as your pastor, what I want to know, are you interested? Do you want to go down this road? Or are we just satisfied? Let's, let me pray. And then I'm going to keep preaching. God, these are big things that I have no answers for. I, am, I, in this moment, am trying to be obedient in the preaching of your word. And so I, I at this moment, just want to give us some space, some time for the Holy Spirit to take what has been said and to minister to each of us. Lord, encourage those who need to be encouraged right now and convict those who need to be convicted right now. Oh God, please help us to love you with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength. To seek first the kingdom. Amen. What we take for granted, Paul makes explicit here who is eligible for this obedience of faith. You see, there was a big debate in the, at the time that Paul wrote this, just, just a little bit earlier, is, is this, this gospel, this obedience of faith available just to the Jews? Or can any person in any nation become a slave of Christ? And, and it's, 
extremely good news, if you look here, is explicit. There's no way to, to ignore this. It's become very well received and, and understood. He says it's not just for the Jews, it's among all the nations. But this, this is dynamite explosion at the time when he says it. Uh, this is an amazing thing that, that even a Gentile sinner can be grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. So, so we have citizenship in heaven because it's available to all of the nations. How seriously do we take that citizenship? Do you know what a gift that is? I want to just end by showing you the structure of the book. And this fits right into what we've been talking about. Maybe it's through preaching the book of Romans that this we will find ourselves gravitating more to this side of the spectrum of the obedience of faith. Maybe, maybe as we, we go through the book of Romans, we'll say, wow, increasingly we are reorganizing our lives so that we can love God more fully. Because that's exactly Paul's conviction he says the gospel of God will bring this about. That if the gospel of God is active in the heart of a person, you can't help but gravitate toward loving God more and reorganizing your life more. So maybe we just need to preach the gospel more. And that's exactly how he structures the book. For 11 chapters, chapters 1 through 11, all Paul does is tell us what this gospel is in greater detail. And, and as he's writing, you can just see him worshiping. He's like, this is the most amazing thing. I can't believe I have the opportunity to share these amazing, wonderful, glorious, life-shaking, uh, life-altering truths with you. And he starts in chapters 1 through 3 uh, talking about total depravity. He says, I want you to know who you were before Jesus came and saved you. Because unless you know who you were before and where you were going before Christ came to save you, the gospel will be cheap and it will mean nothing to you. So, so we start with the bad news. And then about halfway through chapter 3, uh, we get the glorious gospel that, but now God has found another way to glorify himself. It's through the salvation of sinners, through Jesus Christ, who is our propitiation. And then in chapters 4 and 5, he, he explains to us what justification is. What does it mean that, that we were condemned, we had an infinite sin debt, but now God has made us righteous. Not only has he canceled our sin debt, but he's topped us up with the full righteousness of Christ himself so that we are rightly called saints. And then in chapters 6 and 7, he says, and yet it's a slow and continual process where you have to put to death sin and fight for every ounce of obedience in the faith. You were slaves of sin, but now you're slaves of Christ. It's chapter 6 and 7 where he talks about sanctification. And then in chapter 8, he says, uh, he, he begins to talk to us about glorification. But the day is coming. Oh, yes, I know now it is hard. And we are, we are grieved under the weight of our own flesh and our own sin tendencies. And the whole creation is groaning under the curse that God has put on. But there is a day coming when Christ returns, when the sons of God will be raised in glory and everything will be made brand new. That's glorification. Then for three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11, he talks about election. 
This is the, the crown on the gospel, which we often are embarrassed to say we believe in, or we have emotional misgivings about it. And those are real things that we'll explore. But he says, you were chosen. God knew you and chose you. He talks about future hope for Israel as well. So 11 chapters where he says, if you really understand what I'm telling you, then chapters 12 through 16, you'll live like this. And chapters 12 through 16 is, is Paul's effort at trying to paint a picture of what does the obedience of faith look like. It's grounded on the gospel and sound doctrine. And you know what we've done in the church we have the doctrine people and we have the faith and practice people. And they fight over which one is right. No, it's important that we know our Bibles. It's know that we know what's true. It's important that we know uh, about justification, sanctification, glorification, election. We need to talk about predestination. Uh, the, the, those, those people are, are fighting for more knowledge. And then you have the other people say, no, what we need to do is we need to go out and we need to be at a soup kitchen. We need to, we need to be trying to save the unborn. We need to be trying to do uh, any other kind of good work. And, and these two groups of people start fighting. And Paul, he would just knock our heads together and say, what are you talking about? You know things so that you are motivated to be and to do things. And Christian living cut off from Christian doctrine is just moralism and legalism that any secular person could do. There's a lot of secular people doing really good things. But it's not flowing out of the gospel. And over here, if you know a lot of stuff and it's not changing your life, the way you live your life, then it's meaningless. And in 1 Timothy, we're told that's what the false teachers were all about, just head knowledge. But the more you know, the more you will be drawn into this obedience of faith that we're longing for. The two absolutely go together. So chapters 1 to 11 are what we would call orthodoxy, right belief right doctrine, and chapters 12 through 16 are orthopraxy, right living, right practice. And right in the middle, at the hinge point of the book of Romans, we have Romans 12, 1 and 2. I'm just going to read it for you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. What is he saying? I appeal to you. In light of these 11 chapters of doctrine that I have just written to you, in light of all of this, I'm appealing to you by the mercies of God. Now that you know the gospel, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If we know the gospel, we should submit our bodies as a living sacrifice. What does that mean? It means that we organize our lives around the central 
truth, the central fact of the gospel, we seek first the kingdom of God. Verse 2, don't be conformed to this world. Here's the facts, here's the truth. Every one of our lives is conformed to this world. How different are we really? Other than the fact that you're sitting here instead of getting groceries right now. But other than that. Now obviously, I'm trying to make a point. Obviously, hopefully, there's other differences as well. But, are those differences to the point where the average onlooker would say, wow, there is someone seeking first the kingdom of God. Now, they probably wouldn't use those words. They'd say, wow, that person's crazy. Is that true of us? As we go through the book of Romans, we're going to learn about what is true. And I've laid my cards on the table. My hope, my prayer, my plea to you and to God is that as we wrestle with what is true, our hearts will lead us by the Holy Spirit. His unction will lead us here to a greater manifestation of the obedience of faith. No longer content to restrain sin, but to radically transform our lives, reorganize our priorities so that we turn the world upside down starting here in Barrie, Ontario. Do you think 50 adults and 50 kids can turn the world upside down? I think if we're down here, Seeking first the kingdom of God, we absolutely can and we will. Because 12 men turn the world upside down. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Because we can't make this happen. Uh, though we do want to participate with you, we want to partner with you. Deepen our resolve, deepen our commitment, deepen our obedience in faith. Not because we need to earn anything from you, but because of everything that you have done for us merits us to pour it all out for you. And Lord, I pray that you would protect each one of us from getting to the end of our days and to finding that we're filled with regret over a life lived half-heartedly with lukewarm intentions. Please, Lord, don't spit us out, but help us to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.